0: We are recording. OK, I don't have a pocket to keep it in, unfortunately, but uh, We're covering two basic topics here today. This is a real practical course that we're dealing with or class uh, today. And the two topics that we're going to talk about today is um, the poor in the suburbs, which we are a part of. And then we're also going to talk about, before that, short-term mission trips, because oftentimes short-term mission trips are geared to who? the poor. The poor sometimes in, in our country or sometimes the poor in other countries. And so usually, um, because that, that is so prevalent that we do short-term mission trips to, to poor countries, uh, let's discuss the positives and negatives of us doing that. Um, so the topic is short-term mission trips. Open for discussion. Give me first some positives that you guys can think of of short-term mission trips.
1: which mm. is usually usually a lot of have a way of you know, transforming the
0: individuals who go or put it into passion to be more um, so, that's so what you're saying is that one it, it brings it, it makes awareness of there's a reality beyond yours <laughs> and two that it drives passion okay in, in
2: some cases that they can, after being made aware of the needs that they see on the trip, address those needs after they return, returned, whether from a distance at the same community or for needs of different communities. Sometimes that has happened as a result,
0: and that's impossible. So you're saying that like by helping others, they sometimes come back to their own community and are inspired to help locally? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, that's one thing I didn't even think about. That's a good point. Any other positives you guys can think about? So it brings outside resources like knowledge and money and, and fills the need that, that was present there. Okay. Um, what about some negatives? What are some bad things you think that might be a result of short-term missions?
2: There's a question of whether, um, whether the money that you spend sending a bunch of more to people send of culture for while on then go back
0: the old bang for your bucks deal right yeah. like you know is uh as, as stewards of God's money and resources is that a wise expenditure could there be a lot more accomplished if we send the money <laughs> instead of uh, raising all the money for the plane tickets and wasting all the money on Say Americans going over there were perhaps needier and need more than indigenous people. Okay. Any other negatives you think?
1: The the, the need that the mission team went to go to address really wasn't met. there was a bed they applied where surgery was needed. Mm-hmm.
0: They weren't really what? Needed to begin with. Needed to begin with, yeah. I think that happens a lot when <clears throat> churches with good intentions want to do a short-term mission trip for their congregation, so they send people out to perhaps an area that it wasn't most appropriate for. That, that wasn't the, the, the need. It was a, a group to come in for two weeks, perhaps. Alright, um, we're definitely going to spend some time talking about the positives and negatives of short-term missions. Um, full disclosure, though, on the book, I'm pretty neutral on the topic, but full disclosure, Steve and Brian, the authors of the book, are not very neutral. Um, they're very much, they, 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 they lean much more opposed to short-term missions. Um, and so they lay out some reasons why but they also give some good insight as to like, how to make it better so that they wouldn't be opposed to it. All right, let's talk about culture real quick. Now, there's a couple of things that we have to understand about ourselves as Americans. We are very, our concept of time is very different than the rest of the world. Um, on two extremes, there's something called monochronic and polychronic view of time. Monochronic is the way we Americans think of time. Our, the, our famous saying out of America, of course, is money is time, time is money, right? Um, that's not true for much of the uh, majority world, as we call it. Uh, we value time. We look at it as a very limited resource. And so we have to either save it or use it wisely. And we even use express that in our own theology. Um I don't know how familiar you folks are with the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith. But stealing, breaking the commandment of stealing, according to one of our confessions of faith, means not using your time properly. That's how high we value time in our culture or society. Now, on the very opposite end of that is a polychronic view of time, which is much more thinking of time as an unlimited resource, per se, that there's always more time, that when you schedule things, when you, when you have a schedule, when you, when you have tasks that you have allocated for a particular day, those are mere guidelines and nothing that needs to be strictly adhered to. Time is much more, oh, it's less valued if it is going to interfere in any way with relationship building. Which brings us to our concept of self. We are very individualistic here in America. As you guys know, we were built on the concept of rugged individualism. That's a big part of who we are. That's part of our DNA as um, American citizens. It's it's why, even in our churches, I feel like it's a big part of our DNA. They value principles of self in American American evangelistic realms that we often emphasize the personal salvation of a person. We often emphasize your personal walk with the Lord. We emphasize a lot to do with self. Whereas in, in other countries in the majority world, their emphasis is in collectivism. They place a high emphasis on sacrificing yourself for the good of the group. Uh, And they tend to build very strong bonds and ties to the group. They find their identity in their group as opposed to their identity as an individual, which is something that you see that that is not very often here in the United States and over in the UK. That's why you see a lot of people looking very differently, dressing very oddly sometimes, because we, we, we have this value of you're an individual; you should not be like anybody else. Whereas in other groups, it's very different. Now, knowing those two things about our culture and how we're different—the way we view, our, excuse me—the way we deal with ourselves and the way we deal with time—how do you think that might impact our ministry? To say someone in China, someone in the Middle East, someone in Africa, who has the opposite viewpoint, has is to the other extreme. About their view of self and their view of time. How do you think that that might have impact?
1: My uh, business. I work with many Hispanics. What's your business? I uh, work for Newcomer Funeral Home.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: sell free uh-huh. Uh huh. And here, in, I work out of two chapels: one in Orlando and one in Flagstaff. The obvious difference to me is I can set an appointment with this family person and they may or may not show up. <laughs> I mean, literally, I could confirm with them the night before that we have a apartment. They don't come. I call. Oh, my mother went to Puerto Rico. <laughs> I just confirmed the appointment yesterday. I mean, it's, that is not... And that is a true statement. <laughs> just last week, I had somebody do that. But they... they it's, uh, it's maybe they'll show up, maybe they won't. Uh, where I work in Titusville, I work with essentially all Caucasians. Uh, I don't have any Hispanic families in Titusville. And the only time somebody stood me up was they were sick, literally sick in bed, And they apologized profusely. So that is a huge difference in my own business. Like you know, I mean, if I was going to cancel, if I couldn't, ma- if I set an appointment and I couldn't make it, I would try extremely hard because I didn't know it would be an inconvenience to somebody if I had an appointment and didn't show up, like for the doctor or something. The other thing that I find with my Hispanic family, which is on the Mexico side, is uh, most of the time they will come with another family member, not just a son, typically son, daughter, cousin, aunt, like somebody. And if they don't come with that somebody, 90% of the time, it'll be, well, I have to talk with my son. Whereas if it was a Caucasian family, a non-Hispanic, they make their own decisions.
0: Yeah, those are two great examples of concepts of self and concepts of time.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. and I think as a result, sometimes when we go into missions into um, other countries, and we see people with these different concepts of self and concepts of time, we can often look down upon them because oh, they're not on time. They must be irresponsible. Uh, Are they're 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 they can't make a decision for themselves because they're so community oriented and so a lot of times we take our cultural differences and try to pit them against each other so that ours is better and theirs is something that needs to be improved upon that we say their idea of self and their idea of time is not just different but it's something that needs to be changed and update it. And we take our American ideas, we take our American principles in our short-term mission trips, and try to help them with our ideals, our concept of time, and our concept of self. And therefore, when we leave, we've caused confusion, and a lot of times we've hurt them because we're not dealing with them based on their culture. We're of course trying to infuse ours and our values. And I think that we should also point out, where do you think that the Bible stands, this is just kind of a side question that just popped in my head, where do you think that the Bible stands on concepts of self and concepts of time? Like, if we were to apply a biblical culture, would it be more like ours, or would it be more like the majority world? Just kind of food for thought. I, I, I think it's actually a pretty good balance. Uh, I think that the Bible does, especially concepts of self. I don't. I can't think of too many t- examples of concepts of time in the Bible, but concepts of self. I think uh, you know, there's a good balance of there. That there is some something to say about individual relationships with with the Lord, our individual walks with the Lord. But at the same time, aren't we part of a covenant community? Don't we see that when? Uh, when the, and the foundation of the church when the disciples preached the gospel that households were converted and not just individuals um, and so I think that's something that we need to keep in the back of our mind that our system of values isn't necessarily better it's different and we have to recognize that going into um, helping others of different values and different cultures um and so effects, some of the effects of our short-term mission trips on the poor communities can be somewhat negative, And we can hurt them and hurt ourselves. Because the problem is, a lot of times, our material, our, our definition of, mat- of material pro- poverty isn't the right one. And we think of material poverty as, oh, it's something that they're lacking, something that we need to fill with either money or our ideas. And so we take that ma- definition of material poverty add that to the already God complex that we're having because we think we're better than them. And then their feelings of the people that we're helping, their feelings of inferiority because they see that we have all these resources that they don't have. And what do you get? You get harm to both the materially poor and the non-poor. And so it could be a a recipe for disaster the way a lot of times we structure our short-term mission trips. And we have to be very conscious and careful of that. Um, Short-term mission trips and... All right, so basically what I'm asking here is that we've talked about earlier how we had this continuum where uh, the process in which we reach the materially poor is relief, rehabilitation, and development. Our short-term mission trips, where do you think on that continuum they should be? Thoughts? Should we go into short... Let me ask this a different way. The majority of short-term mission trips that we do, that you guys are familiar with, that you've heard about or been a part of, or that you've supported in the past, would going into a country providing relief be the most appropriate response? Would it be, in other words, stopping the bleeding, stopping them from crisis? Would it be... Rehabilitation, the appropriate response? In other words, going in there and helping them to restore themselves to when they were better, better before the crisis? Or would development be the appropriate response in, in terms of developing something more permanent, developing themselves in their relationship with God's self and others? Where do you think that most trips should fall on? We try to do, be more for yeah, like a response to a crisis like Indonesia with the tsunami mm-hmm. or Japan with the earthquake or Haiti with the earthquake. Uh, that, that's very true. Um, I think though the most of, or at least a, 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 my experience has been that short-term mission trips have been geared more to not necessarily relief that They've been geared to relief efforts, but not in crisis situations. And so my experience has been that there has been some harm caused because we go and provide relief in a situation that's really calling for development. Take your average country that your church might visit in South America or Africa. To my knowledge, there hasn't been any huge crises there um, in the last year or two, that I know about anyway. And so... But they're still very, very poor. There's a lot of poverty there. There's a lot of people hurting. There's a lot of people in need of development as opposed to relief. And so a lot of our mission trips are geared to completing a task. Like, say, I'm going to go there and build a church. I'm going to go there and do this or that. Whereas in, that could possibly be undermining the natives, the indigenous people. And that brings me to this question. Do short-term missions generally take the asset-based approach? And, uh, meaning do they g- generally start with what is good about the community and what the community has, or a needs-based approach, what they're lacking? I think the answer is they usually start with what they're lacking. And that's kind of our the foundation problem, one of the foundational problems with our approach, is that we're starting with what they don't have. And we're outsiders, and we're trying to supply what they don't have. And, however... That's not getting them involved at all if we just give them something that they need. It doesn't help them to create a lasting change because then they just become what? Dependent upon us, sort of the way the welfare system is set up. People receive welfare, and we make them dependent upon it. We don't give them any incentive to do it themselves, to work themselves, and therefore they become dependent on the system. Same thing in our short-term mission trips. We have the best intentions in the world a lot of times, but essentially we become this welfare program. How can a needs-based approach undermine? How can, if we just give people something that they need, even if it's just a one-time gift and we're not making it dependent upon us, even if it's just like a one-time gift, how do you think that might undermine the indigenous people who are there already ministering? Can you guys think of any examples of how we might undermine someone's ministry by just coming in for two weeks and just giving him a gift and leaving. that yeah. I that you're always instead of like being a real person that can contribute back to the relationship that's a great point because I mean how well can you build a lasting relationship in two weeks if you just sit there to drop off a resource like your work like working for them or or, um, or just giving them money or building something for them you know it's not building dignity inside of them that's really just coming in and actually maybe taking stripping them of dignity in some ways by saying that I can provide you something that you can not do for your own self um, let me give you two other quick examples, two stories there's a story of a pastor um, I forget what country he's from to be honest with you but he's an indigenous pastor, let's just say Mexico even though I don't think it is and, um, and so this Mexican pastor um, is has a congregation in a very poor neighborhood in Mexico. And every year, he has a short-term mission trip come in and do a week-long vacation Bible school for the kids. And so uh, this, this short-term mission group comes in. They come and they teach and they dazzle the kids. And, 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 the, and it's, a real, it's a real popular event. It's the biggest church attendance week of his year. The missionaries leave. Attendance goes way back down. His comments about the whole ordeal are is that the fact what, the, what that short-term missions team is doing is that they're coming in and undermining him because they're coming in with all their fancy resources, their materials, their giveaways, their toys, their games, Um, and then also the fact that they're different because they're Americans people are drawn to that and they're coming in and providing all these things that the pastor can't continue to provide and therefore it's making people in his congregation, people in his surrounding community feel that he's boring and it's only cool to come to church when these outsiders come and teach and have all these fancy materials and giveaways and games and stuff like that. And it's undercut his ministry. Um, Another story about this is that a lot of times when uh, American churches with good intentions will try to support indigenous pastors by paying their salaries so that they can perform their ministries. Well, what happens is that the church that they're ministering to, the indigenous pastors ministering to, never give enough to ever become self-sustaining because by us providing salaries to the indigenous pastors is undercutting the the congregation's ministry and obligation to support its pastor. And as a result, it never actually happens or very infrequently it happens. And so we've seen that as another way that we can sometimes undermine ministries by just coming in and giving or doing instead of working with. Wow, it's already getting pretty late. We're going to skip some of these slides. Um, I want to get to poverty in the suburbs. And so let me just end the short-term mission trips with this. What Brian and Steve want to do is they want to challenge people to think, challenge churches to think for themselves. Is it, is it worth it? Is what we're doing in short-term mission trips with all the resources that we're providing, is it worth it? And one of the examples that um, Brian uses in his his book is that he's a pastor in Georgia. And he said, imagine if I got a phone call from, say, a church in Switzerland. And the church in Switzerland wanted to have a short-term mission trip to my church. Well, assuming that they would um, come in and do vacation Bible school for a week assuming they would put together a team of about a dozen people. It would cost at least $20,000 to get them all here, get them all home, and to take care of themselves during the stay here, the week in America. If they sent the money to me of $20,000, instead of spending it on themselves to come and, and, and minister to us, not only could I have finish my building fund that I just need $15,000 for, I'd have $5,000 left over to do my vacation Bible school, which would double my budget from last year. And so what he wants you to do is to, to think, is it sometimes better to send our resources and as opposed to putting together a short-term mission trip that perhaps is not giving you the most bang for your buck. With that said... He doesn't totally knock the short-term mission threads, but he provides helpful ways as to how we can redeem it, make it better, make it so that we're not hurting, and make it so that we are, it's a good, it's it's something good to spend our money on. Um, We don't really have time to get into all those things. That's something that I would share with the pastors when we're developing uh, perhaps a game plan to do short-term missions. Um, but just know that I'm not trying to discourage short-term missions in the sense that I'm saying that it's totally useless. What I'm saying is that there's a right way and there's a wrong way to do it. And a lot of times we in American churches are not being good to of our resources. But, all right, let's talk about poverty in our, in our backyard real quick. This is an interesting statistic. For the first time in the U.S., more people... More poor people live in suburbs than in cities. Now, some of you guys know that I've done a homeless ministry for the last two years, and I've seen that firsthand. They're being driven out of the cities and into the suburbs, the homeless population. And that's not true just for the homeless population, but it's true for people who are borderline homeless. It's true for a lot of different groups that we would consider materially poor. Um, they're, they're being dri- driven into the suburbs. Now, there's a couple key factors that we have to deal with, uh, with that being the case. We have to understand that we're dealing with not just people who are broken as individuals, but also broken living under a broken system that is not necessarily designed to really help them get out of that situation. Poor people are often at the mercy of systems created by the powerful. Hence, poverty alleviation efforts need to address both broken systems and a broken individual using highly relation- relational approaches wherever possible. So it's a, it's a two-pronged attack. We have to deal with the broken system and the broken person. And there's an impact of globalization. We all know that our economy is globalizing, that we're becoming more of a one-world system with advances in technology, North American production is shifting away from basic manufacturing into services and knowledge-intensive sectors, increasing the demand for highly educated workers in North America. Unfortunately, the job opportunities and wages for blue-collar workers in such sectors are lower than they were in traditional manufacturing jobs. Hence, blue-collar workers in North America are getting squeezed, and this trend is very likely to continue and even accelerate in the coming decades. And basically, what Brian and Steve are saying here is that because all the manufacturing jobs are going overseas, a lot of people who lack education who would normally fill those jobs, per se, are having less opportunities to work now, creating more of a dire situation for people who are poor and who are lacking education. So one of the things we have to address is the lack of education that we have amongst the materially poor. Another thing that we need to address is skills. Worker, economic, globalization highlights the need for a strong educational system that produces workers not just with vocational training but also with sufficient general skills and the basic capacity to learn so that they can adapt to a rapidly changing global economy. And then lastly, we also have to address the situation, well not lastly, but we also have to address the importance of wealth accumulation because the fact is the materially poor, what are they not doing? They're not accumulating wealth. Accumulating wealth plays three distinct roles in poverty alleviation. And we're not, when we speak of wealth, we're not speaking of income. We're speaking of savings. We're speaking of things like investments, 401k, things like that, things that are more long-term, not just a high income. Accumulating wealth plays three distinct roles in poverty alleviation. First, wealth provides the buffer that people need in order to survive when they have been laid off. Second, wealth generates additional income, stocks and bonds, pays dividends, houses appreciate, cars can help you get to work, etc. Third, the process of saving and managing wealth develops positive attitudes and self-discipline, changing mindsets to live for the future. And it's been my experience in dealing with homeless ministry for a couple years now. Now that is one of the, number three there, is one of the key factors. That it changes people's mindset when they begin to build wealth. Because the mindset of the homeless or people who are materially poor, I can tell you firsthand, is very much live for the moment. Live for now. I've got money, let me go spend it. And there's no sense of long-term thinking. And thus, it keeps them down. Because if you're not saving for the future, then they won't have in the future. And it's a vicious cycle of poverty that just keeps them down with that mindset. And lastly, there's also problems with housing and health care. Despite a decrease of income and increase of poverty, living expenses have gone up. How many of you guys are paying less in electric and utilities and water than you were two years ago? None of us, right? They're all going up. But is income going up? No. Income is almost down to a level that we had in the 1990s. It's 10, 15 years ago. So our income is going down. But our expenses are going up. Um, and this includes rent. And let me just... Uh, one of the effects of our economy, one of the effects of the recession is that you have a high percentage of... of uh, Foreclosures, High percentage of people going bankrupt and being kicked out of their houses. As a result, those people have to live somewhere, right? So they're being pushed out of homeownership and into rental situations. So while the value of houses is going down in terms of buying them, and you can buy a house cheaper, poor people can't qualify for loans. I do loans for a living. I know this. <laughs> um, and so if they're not qualifying for loans, then that means they're what? They're paying rent. And one of the trends that we've seen in our economy recently is that even though things aren't getting much better, rental rates are increasing. And, I've ta- and in my field of work, I've talked to a lot of landlords about this, and I've, I, I've studied this part of the economy. And I can tell you right now that it's a something that's really affecting the livelihood of the materially poor who can who are not living on the streets but are are, are living in houses, that their expenses are going up, but yet their income is not. In fact, their income is probably decreasing. 47% of low-income households in the U.S. spend more than 50% of their income in housing. To spend more than half of your paycheck in going into your house, just paying either for rent or for mortgage, is a lot. When I do mortgages for somebody, you know what our target is? For how much do they spend on their house? 28%. This is saying that people are spending over 50% of their gross income in their house. Means double of what we at as, as the bank find justifiably affordable. In 2007, 42% of working adults in the U.S. were either uninsured or underinsured. And 37% reported going without needed care because of rising prices. How many of you guys are paying more for healthcare than you did a few years ago? I think everybody is. I remember when I first got my so-called real job out of college, and I started taking um, healthcare payments out of my, uh, you know my, um, yeah, my healthcare payments out of, out of my check. It wasn't that much. I never, I remember not seeing it as a real significant amount. Like it was like maybe like a hundred or two hundred dollars a month or something like that. But now, what they take out of your checks is enormous. Um, my brother i can tell you who has a—it's him his wife and and their daughter and he has excellent benefits and they're still taking like 3 or 400 dollars a month out of his check so i mean healthcare has more than doubled in just the previous 6 years it's, it's reality check it's getting expensive those are all issues that we have to deal with that are affecting the poor not just living in the suburbs but living everywhere here in, in north america these are factors that the church has to address. Now, so the poor in the U.S. could benefit from, based on all the things that we just talked about, we can they can benefit from the ability to work at jobs with living wages, the capacity to manage their money, the opportunity to accumulate wealth, and a greater supply of quality education, housing, and healthcare at affordable rates. Now, The principles that we have learned in our course don't necessarily apply to number four. So we're going to spend our time discussing the first three. Helping people attain good jobs. Helping people that can help teach them how to manage their money. And also helping people how to accumulate wealth. Um, And so those lead to three different kinds of ministries. Job preparedness ministries, financial education ministries, and wealth accumulation ministries talk real quick about job preparedness industries classroom training uh, and there's three ways we can help here classroom training for the poor people that emphasize the development of soft skills from a biblical perspective do you guys know what I mean by soft skills soft skills aren't job specific soft skills aren't like if you're a mechanic a hard skill is knowing how to fix a car a soft skill is having a good work ethic. A soft skill is how to be punctual on time. So soft skills are skills that apply to all industries, whereas in hard skills are more job-specific. And so what the church needs to do, because the church doesn't have the capacity necessary to, to teach hard skills, because there's too many different jobs that the poor, that, that the materially poor can have. And so it would be too much of a drain on resources to teach hard skills. But soft skills we can do, especially from a biblical perspective. What does the Bible have to say about working for your employer and working hard? What does the Bible say about the respect that you give to your master or your boss? What does the Bible have to say about working for yourself and not living on welfare or something like that? And so, aren't there biblical principles for all these things? And so we can teach these soft skills through using the Bible. Two, mentors provide support and encouragement to participants, helping them to overcome obstacles that hinder their ability to complete the class, to get a job, or to cope with life. The fact is that some, a lot of times it's not all physical, is it? It's also a mental m- oppression that the poor have, and that they just feel that they can never overcome. They just feel that they're not good enough. Um, In the first week of class, what we did here was we took definitions of poor from the poor themselves, of how they see themselves. And what we determined was that the poor see themselves with shame and just feel like they're worthless. And that's the way they feel about themselves. But if you have mentors helping them to overcome their negative mindset, well then that's one of the things in which you can prepare them for productivity in the workplace. And third... Businesses covenant to provide interviews, job opportunities, and supportive work and environments to graduates. Uh, this reminds me of the organization in Castleberry that we support here as a church called Christian Help. Christian Help basically partners with jobs all across Orlando. And they say, listen, if we put our people through this program, will you, prov- will you promise to provide a certain amount of jobs to the people who graduate and finish our program? And they get businesses to agree to that. And so that's just one way that, you know, a church who wants to provide a job preparedness course can integrate in the community, partner with businesses, and offer jobs to people who complete their course. The a very practical, practical way in which we can help the surrounding materially poor. I want to share with you real quick the importance of soft skills. If you take a look at this chart, about, I think it was like something like 300... Uh, various employers were interviewed and asked to rank what they look for in potential employees. If you take a look at the top of the chart having soft skills like having a positive attitude reliability, strong work ethic ranked amongst the top, nearly amongst all the employers. But what ranks on the bottom? More of the hard skills, like what's the very bottom one, having the necessary training. Necessary specific training for a job, that's a hard skill, and it ranks towards the bottom. Uh, Look at the the fourth one from the bottom, or no, I'm sorry, the fifth one from the bottom, having prior work experience. That ranks just in the middle, maybe even towards the bottom a little bit, and that's a hard skill, is having specific industry knowledge. You see? And so the point is, teaching soft skills is very important. And it might sound like fluff to you, but it's something that employers have put a very high value on. The second way we can help the poor is through financial education ministries. The poor are a target for predatory lending. And I can tell you that is absolutely true. Everywhere. I see it here in Orlando. see it everywhere I go. You guys live next to a check cashing place or next to a payday or next to, um, in some cases, Amscot. Um, these are all examples of predatory lending. Um, when, even pawn shops in some scenarios. Because what they do is that they give poor people loans on extraordinarily high... There is basically legalized... Loan sharks. Um, if you if you take a loan from like say one of those uh, uh, you know get your paychecks ahead, before you get your paycheck places, the if you if you average it out over a year, it's, you're paying about three hundred percent interest on your money. And so, who's giving out loans to these poor people? Because the banks aren't doing it. Responsible lenders aren't doing it. It's just people who are going to take advantage of these poor people of extremely high interest rates. How are you going to get out of poverty if you are constantly indebted to these loan sharks? Well, obviously it's going to be all that much harder. They need to be educated about that. Um, I, I think our church does a good job of this, providing curriculum such as FPU, Financial Peace University, that Dave Ramsey course. It teaches people how to save for the money, teaches them how to set goals, to get out of the situation that they're in, and to get out of um, using, being indebted to creditors and things like that. Um, also, financial education ministries can help to mitigate the problem of low-wage employment by helping trainees to use the U.S. government's Earned Income Tax Credit. Now, i got to miss you, this is something that I don't know much about. Um, this tax credit is provided, apparently, to people to supplement their income. The way it works is that, let's say you have a person living under the poverty line, but he's working. And I actually like this program. I think it incentivizes people to work. Well, let's say you're only making $8 an hour and you have to try to feed your family of 4 off $8 an hour work. That's not a possibility. Food prices and living expenses are way too high to be able to pull that off. And so what the government does, it says, for every $8 that you make, we'll give you an additional $4. Um, now, I just made that ratio up, but it's it, the ratios vary depending on the need of the person. And so I, I, I like it. And one of the ways that we can teach people is how to take advantage of these programs that are set up to help them and, and aid them. Um, something that I've done in my homeless ministry, too, not with that program per se, but with other programs. they have been able to get people on food stamps. And other programs that can help them. Now, unfortunately, I think a lot of that stuff is making them even more dependent and hurting them. But we can't help in that capacity. Because one of the statistics that was thrown out was that in that program, EITC, about 25% of people who, are, who can take advantage of that program don't even know it exists. I didn't even know it existed until... I read the book. Um, And then finally, Wealth Accumulation Ministries. Um, There's something called an IDA, Individual Development Account. It's something that churches have been getting involved in. And it's something that's a really neat program. Here's the way it works. A church decides to take someone who's been habitually poor and wants to help them to build wealth. They set up a savings account that incentivizes that poor person to save their own money by matching them. And so a church might say, okay, for every dollar that you save, I'll give you two. And they establish this in a savings account. And over time, that poor person has learned the value of saving. And at the end of the program, whether it be one, two, three, four, ten years... They have them tangible money that can be placed towards an asset. So the way this would work out is, they're saying, "All right, Mr. Smith, who is materially poor, for every dollar that you save, we'll, we'll put two in that account. And then at the end of your goal, say your goal is to raise ten thousand dollars, we will give you that money that we have matched, but we will only give you that money if you put it towards the purchase of an asset." such as a down payment on a house, a car to get to and from work, um, something like that. Or, or, or perhaps you just want to put it into your retirement plan. That's acceptable, too. And so it's one practical way that the church can help out.
1: Um,
0: oh, and it, and it's pretty practical for the church to do, too, because it doesn't take a lot. If The church is struggling, like all churches are in this economy right now, you only have to do it with one or two people. It doesn't have to be for every member or for everyone who wants it. You qualify for pe- you qualify people, you screen them, you determine who's the best for your program and how much you can afford. And then you build a program based on that. Okay. The last thing I want to share with you, um, something that Mary and Andrew and I were talking about outside, is something called the microfinance revolution is something that is going on in the, what we call the majority world, or we would also, also say third world countries, things like that, in which banks have been established to give poor people loans. That might sound funny to you. Why, why would you lend money to a poor person? I know from a North American, as a North American banker, as I am, or I was, that's a completely foreign concept. You don't give loans to poor people. <laughs> the problem is... Sometimes they need it just to finance, to start businesses, to, and to get on their own feet. And so I just want to read to you a quick story of the way uh, this has worked out really good in some third world countries. In 1976, a virtually unknown economist professor was visiting a village in rural Bangladesh during a devastating famine. There he encountered Sophia a very poor woman who was struggling to support her family by weaving bamboo stools. Sophia was trapped. She needed to borrow 22 cents per day to buy materials. But banks would not lend to her because she did not have acceptable collateral and her desired loan amount was too small. As a result, Sofia was forced to borrow from a loan shark, whose exorbitant rates of interest left her with only two cents of profit at the end of a 12-hour workday. Sofia's neighbors expressed similar frustration, facing interest rates ranging from 10% per week, which is 520% a year, to ten percent a day, which amounts to an APR of three thousand six hundred fifty percent. Could you imagine paying that on your mortgage? The professor reached into his pocket and lent Sofia and, and I'm sorry. The professor reached into his pocket and left Sofia and forty one of her neighbors a total of twenty seven dollars. To the amazement of observers, the loans were fully repaid and were paid on time. Contrary to the received wisdom, it was possible to lend money to very poor people and get paid back. Thirty-five years later, that economist professor, Dr. Muhammad Yunus, is a Nobel uh, laureate at the Greenman Bank. And he established a bank to provide credit to the poorest people of Bangladesh and has 7.58 million poor borrowers and has lent them 7.4 billion since its inception in 1976. More than 98% of Greenman loans have been repaid, meaning that Greenman money can be lent and relent to poor people over and over again. Moreover, Dr. Yunus's work has spawned the global microfinance movement, which aims to reach 175 million of the world's poorest families with loans and other financial services by the end of 2015. Indeed, microfinance, which is sometimes also referred to as microenterprise development, has become one of the premier strategies for bringing economic empowerment to poor people in the majority world. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about microfinance because it's not really applicable to us. To our church situation, we're not going to start a bank. We're not going to do that here. And we're probably not going to get involved with that overseas. And so I just wanted you guys to be aware that something like that was out there. And one of the methods that is out there to help the materially poor, that has been very successful. And now let us conclude with this. only got a couple more minutes, so... Let's just have a quick time of reflection. I'm going to stop the recording here.